Well, one last time for this particular study, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, as we look at this morning at the concluding verses, verses 10 through 14, it's always somewhat that sad to me uh, when I come to the end of preaching through any particular book. It's somewhat like saying goodbye to an old friend, although we know that it's always here for us. But having now gone through this, we will move on to other things and preaching sequentially and ex- expositionally through books of the Bible, you you start to realize, I think, when you're my age, that you get one shot to go through these. And uh, that's probably it. And the sad part is that, you know, you're not going to make it through even all the ones that are still left to go through, uh, which is, is really sorrowful, I think, uh, for me, in all sincerity. I, I wish I could make it through all 66 books in a manner that they deserve to be treated uh, in the depth of which they deserve to be explored. And so we, we say goodbye to Peter's first letter. Certainly we'll pick up traces of it in the future as we look at Second Peter at some point and even uh, beginning next Sunday as we go into the book of Jude for eight weeks and uh, go through that small letter before we begin our fall sermon series. Uh, we'll pick up glimpses of Peter's writing as well there, but for our formal study of this great letter we conclude this morning. Let's begin in verse 10, 1 Peter chapter 5. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Father, thank you for this letter. Thank you that in your divine wisdom and love, you knew that we needed this. And so you gave it from your mind to our eyes that it might affect our heart. And we're thankful. So Father, cause us this morning, even as we conclude this letter, as we say, thank you for the many valuable and precious lessons that have been learned through its study. Father, cause us to stand firm in it. Cause us to rejoice in it. Cause us to understand peace that comes from it. Remind us of those things. Point us to you. And instruct our hearts, Holy Spirit, even now this morning we pray for Jesus' sake and for His name. Amen. So as Peter writes these concluding words, it's like he's setting, I think, before all of us this morning, a graduation 
ceremony, a commencement speech, if you will. But it's not just any ordinary commencement speech. It's not any ordinary graduation. Rather, it's like a commencement speech, and it's like a graduation ceremony from a military academy whose graduates are completing their studies in the midst of a time of war. Everyone knows the circumstances to which they are headed. This is no peacetime endeavor that Peter is sending you and I out into. We know the equipping that we've received from the very beginning of his letter that's been handed down to us, that has been given to us from the mind of God through the apostolic pen of the Apostle Peter. We know that we have been well equipped and well trained. And now the the moment of truth, as we sang earlier this morning, lead on, O King Eternal. The day of March has come. It's not the time to simply take what we've learned and sit in the ivory towers of our homes or our libraries and to just simply reflect upon this is time to take up the sword of the word of God and to march forward. The the moment of truth has come for all of us. I can remember as a kid growing up, my my dad did me a, a great service. He instilled in me a a love for our country. He instilled in me a love for manhood, for standing for truth. One of the ways that he did that was to often take VCR tapes. Kids, you don't know what those are anymore. And on a Friday night or a Saturday night and to plug one in that was some great old World War II movie. Black and white, most of them. One that I've shown to my boys recently was entitled, and some of you will know this, The Long Gray Line. It's a story of West Point. And there are clips within that movie at, at which are, they're not movie, they, they are real clips that occurred among cadet life. And one of those is the moment in which it was announced to the troops that Pearl Harbor had occurred. And they were in the chapel and they stand and they begin to sing. And then the movie concludes as each one of those graduates, their name is called and they are handed their commission and their diploma only to be deployed immediately to the battlefront. Those are the scenes that flash before my mind in an earthly sense of what Peter is doing for us this morning. Our names have been called, brothers and sisters, not by a commencement speaker, but by a sovereign God. We have been chosen, we have been called, we have been equipped, and now it is to the battle that we are commanded to march. Peter, as the commencement speaker, pulls no punches. He tells us what we are in for, and he has throughout the entirety of the book. Nor does he leave the outcome in question. It is not if we will win, but is that we are going and that we will win. This is not like a human battle. It is a spiritual battle of which God is sovereign and which God will win. There is no chance of defeat. 
And for that, we are not only marching to war, we are marching to war with a smile on our face, with a joy in our heart, with a confidence in our conquering Savior. And so Peter, having equipped us so well, summarizes his thoughts here in these closing verses and hits the high points that have occurred throughout the letter so that you're ready to move, sufficiently motivated, thoroughly equipped. And so this morning, I want to give you those points in the form of four Ps. Yes, it's alliterated. Yes, that's stereotypical of preachers. But I want to give you four Ps to help you remember these truths. Not just to get through a sermon, but I want you to remember these. I want you to take these to heart because these are the truths that will sustain you. Because you are going to war. The enemy is going to assault you. And it will be vicious when he does. But keeping these things in mind will equip you for the battle that is ahead. Number one, the first P, remember the person. Remember the person that we are to keep in view at all times. Now our English versions and yours, at least almost all of them, and certainly the ones that are in most popular usage today, have attempted to smooth the reading out of this text. But the the original letter that Peter wrote in the Greek actually has more punch about it. It, it, it assaults the mind. It, it equips the mind. It, it, it is so colorful, even though it doesn't read quite as smoothly to say it this way. And yet, Peter begins with a focus on the person rather than the circumstances as your English translation does. It actually reverses the phraseology of it. And Peter simply says this. He begins by saying, The God of all grace. As we, as we begin to think about what we must say in conclusion, here's how I want to begin. It is the God of all grace. You've got to put that on first. Put those glasses on first in order to see everything else correctly. Christian, let me say to you, That your world will be a world of inestimable frustration and fear and grief if you do not begin where Peter begins. If you begin with anything else at the forefront of your thoughts other than the God of every grace, you will fail. You will become disillusioned. You will become discouraged. You will become fearful. You will lack assurance. And so Peter closes by saying, listen, it is the God of all grace. Literally the God of every single grace that you must focus on. The world lacks and worldly minded Christians lack a frame of reference for stability. Because they begin to build a foundation upon man and not God. Upon what man can do. Upon what man appears to be able to do. Rather than to build it upon the God of all grace. Christian, I hope you realize that nothing that we are this morning and nothing that we have in any measure is a result of our own strength. 
everything that we are, everything that we have, down to our faith itself comes as a gift of God's grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. So that even that is a gift of God, not of your works, so that no man can boast. Peter begins where we should begin. It is the God of every grace. Don't insert yourself where you do not belong. Keep your mind and your eyes on God as you traverse the world, as you engage the world, as you live out your faith and your life in the conflict of a fallen world with eyes convinced that it is the God of every grace who is your hope. I want you to look at Abraham as your example. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, notice how it was that Abraham lived his life. By the way, we, Terry and I were talking before anyone arrived this morning about Abraham. What made Abraham so special that God would call him? Not a blessed thing. He was a pagan idolater. Nothing more, nothing less. There was nothing remarkable about Abraham's life and yet God called him, and then, then after God calls him, notice how Abraham lives, Hebrews eleven eight, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. By going out to a place he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise. By the way, what does Peter call us? Strangers and aliens. We're just like Abraham. Hey, wait, I can identify with this guy. He lived by faith in an alien land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Now notice verse 10. For he was looking for the city which has foundation, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham wasn't looking for something that, that, that was chained to this world, that, that was a product of his doing, a product of his own faith even. Abraham walked through this world as an alien and a stranger looking for the city that God built. That God sustained where God is. Peter calls us like Abraham was called of God. To remind us that we are aliens, we are strangers, and we we share an almost identical story with Abraham. We are only here, brothers and sisters, because of God's grace. You were not called by God because you were more moral than the next person, because you were smarter than the next person, because you had some deep reserve of faith that you could draw from, whereas your neighbor did not. You are not here for any other reason. You are not a believer in God for any other reason than God gave His grace to you. You experience the call of God like Abraham. We're aliens passing through this life like Abraham was. And yet, like Abraham and his descendants, we are heirs of a great promise, aren't we? 
a great promise of life eternal. And all of this has been accomplished by a greater God, just as Abraham realized, even though he had the physical promises of the land and he had all of the the promises that were given to him, he was still looking for a city whose architect and builder is God. Even that was not the ultimate and he knew it. And so we are called to focus upon God in verse 10, that the God of all grace, the God of all grace should be our Focus, because the certainty of your future, Christian, does not rest upon your strength, but upon His grace. The certainty of our future is still a result of the God of every grace. Because He has called us. Notice verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you, we have been called to eternal glory. We did not choose Him. We did not seek Him. He sought us. John fifteen sixteen. Jesus utters these words. You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. It wouldn't fade away. It wouldn't burn off as we read earlier of temporal believers that, 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 that flash up and seem to be something and then fall away. No, we have been chosen that our fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give it to you. This is God's plan. This is Peter's point. This is Jesus' point. It's the point of all of Scripture. This is God's plan. It is the God of every grace who's done this. And if it's God's plan, guess what it cannot do? Fail. Don't you remember the song that you sang as a child in Sunday school growing up? God can do anything, anything, anything. God can do anything but what? Fail. He's Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. This is God's plan. He will see it through because He is the God of every grace. He is the God of the call. He is the sovereign in control of all things. And He will not fail. Christian, that is of immense comfort to us. That is of excellent worth to us. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, if you just want to flip over there and look at Hebrews chapter 11 and look at the long list of people who are there. Were those people perfect? No. In fact, even as you look through that list of people, even after God called them and even after God began to work in them, they still had episodes and chapters of their life where we would characterize them more as scoundrels than heroes. Abraham. She's not my wife. She's my sister. Please don't hurt me. Talk about the doctrine of safism. Selling your wife out so that they don't hurt you? What a coward. Yet Abraham was God's chosen one. He was called by God. He did not ultimately fail or fall away. Noah. Remember, it wasn't Noah's good works. It wasn't Noah's virtuous character that caused him to be uh, called of God. It was the fact that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. 
for whatever reason, God looked down on Noah and said, I'm going to use him. Noah wasn't a particularly righteous or perfect man. In fact, after the flood, we find that Noah did some pretty despicable things. Things that we would look at and say, oh man. And yet there he is in Hebrews chapter 11. And we look at these people and we find that their lives really, even after they are God's people, are fraught with failures. And yet they did not fail. And why did they not fail? Because it was God's plan, not theirs. It was God's strength, not theirs. It was the end of the story which God had written. The God of every and all grace is the reason why Hebrews 11 is there. Because humanly speaking, these people are failures. It's not open for debate. This is the reality. The only way we make it through is how Peter begins verse 10. The God of every grace is your reality. And because of that, we have an unspeakable assurance and an unspeakable confidence marching, as it were, into this battle. Were it not for the God of all grace, we would have no grace. And the moment that we begin to try to infringe upon and participate in that grace in such a way that we have done something to accomplish it, it ceases to be grace. And it is only by grace that we are saved. So brothers and sisters, let us keep our eyes on the prize. Keep our eyes on the ball, as it were, with Peter. May the God of every grace, may we keep that in our minds. Undeserved mercy, undeserved favor of God, shown solely for the purpose of God's glory. He wants these believers to to have that hammered home and he'll repeat that in various ways as we move through the text this morning. Suffice it to say that when we try and participate in grace, we don't strengthen it, we neuter it. We render it no longer grace and something that is only as strong as we are. And so Peter says, keep your mind in the heat of battle that this battle is won by the God of every grace. And you will be sufficient for the battle because of His grace, not because of your own strength. Focus on the sovereign and gracious One who cannot fail. He has chosen you. He has called you. Now I want to illustrate that for you from Scripture this morning. And I think one of the the most profound chapters and verses in the entire Bible. And it occurs in Daniel chapter 4. Would you look there with me? Daniel chapter 4. Because our pride will well up within us. There's no question. Every one of us has struggled with these realities that Peter is putting out there. This is... This is this is like that very difficult course that you take in the time of study that that is a pass fail and it determines whether or not you stay in the program. To, to, To submit ourselves to the absolute power of the sovereign grace of God, it's difficult, but it is oh so necessary and critical. And we find that it is so critical and so important, yet so powerful, that even pagan kings like Nebuchadnezzar have had to come to the point where they acknowledge it to be true. 
Notice what Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. You remember the story? God has humbled him. He had a very inflated view of himself. He had believed that he was the greatest of all the kings of the earth. God has a way of humbling people, doesn't he? So out Nebuchadnezzar goes to the field. (laughs) Really? Watch this. And Nebuchadnezzar, we know, he crawls around, he eats like an animal, his hair and his nails, it's just a grotesque picture. And then at the end of that time, verse 34, but at the end of that period, Nebuchadnezzar says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Wait a minute. What does verse 11 say this morning? To Him be what? Dominion forever and ever. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar is actually preaching Peter's sermon for him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven. The host of heaven. Have you been out to look at those lately? Have you seen the host of heaven? Nicole and I celebrated our 22nd anniversary yesterday and we had a little date on friday we went by barnes and nobles and we're just perusing books and we like to look at those coffee table books and they had one on the hubble telescope's greatest pictures and we opened that and we began to look at things you can't see with the naked eye but this amazing telescope is looking light years into other galaxies And Psalm 19 just is all over that. The heavens declare the glory of God. Nebuchadnezzar says that he does his will even in the host of the heavens. All those stars and galaxies and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can ward off his hand. You're not changing the plan of God or say to him, what have you done? You can't do that. Jeremiah would say it's like the potter. And the clay saying to the potter, why did you make me like this? Who has sovereignty, the potter or the clay? It's the potter. And so Daniel is is recording Nebuchadnezzar's words and it's validating what Peter is saying. Listen, he is the God of all grace. He has control of everything. You are here because he has called you to be here. And, And his dominion and his control is forever and ever and it's unquestionable. If we were to go back now to 1 Peter, 1 Peter is full of this same storyline. This has been on Peter's heart throughout the entirety of the book. Let me just read through quickly how Peter begins the book. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen... And if you remember even there, again, to smooth it out in English, the, that phrase, who are chosen, is tacked on at the end of the verse when really Peter wrote it at the beginning of the verse. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are chosen, residing in all of these places. Why are they there? How do they become believers? Because God chose them. 
Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. Why are we protected? Because God is doing this, not us. Verse 13 of chapter 1, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Isn't that what Peter's doing for us this morning? Preparing us for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on what? The grace. What grace? The grace from the God of every grace. To be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 15. But like the Holy One who called you. What does Peter say in verse 10? We are the ones who are called to eternal glory. Be holy yourself in all your behavior. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen race just as Abraham was. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for God's own possession. For what purpose Peter? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him again who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Verse 10, For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Hearkening back to the book of Hosea, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why? Because He is the God of every grace. Everything. We have, Peter says, is due to Him. If you want to win the fight, you must be focused on the One who alone has already won the fight. The person of God and His awesome work for you who are chosen, who are called, who are saved, and who are kept. You want to win the battle? Just put that armor on. You're invincible. You're invincible. You can go out from this place. You can graduate from this school. You can be commissioned into an army. And you can go and fight toe-to-toe with Satan himself. Why? I've been chosen. I've been called. I've been equipped. And I will be kept. I can't lose. Eternity is secure for me. That's something that no earthly military commander can offer, but our Heavenly Father can. I want you to notice, secondly, the second P this morning, the promises. That is, the person of God is central to all of this. The God of every grace, after you have suffered for a little while, He will do something for you. You're suffering. Yes, you're going to suffer. Yes, it's going to be difficult. But you don't lose. You win. And there's a promise, a set of promises actually, here in this verse that are so comforting, so exciting, so stabilizing, so strengthening. When we understand that the work of God in choosing us and calling us to be a people for Himself, just like Abraham, then and only then do the promises of God begin to take form. They mean something now. 
with that running in the background, with that being the foundation, I want you to, to consider Paul's words to the, to the Jewish believers in Rome in Romans chapter 11. Paul is bringing some stability to a very unstable situation. They have rejected God. God has cast them off for a period of time. It looks like they're going to be lost forever. Now, if you're a Jew and you're reading that, what are you thinking? Help! We messed up! It's over! But what does Paul comfort them with in Romans eleven twenty eight? From the standpoint of the Gospel, speaking of us, the Gentiles, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The Jews became jealous of the Gentiles. Wait a minute, you mean God cast us off and now He's saving all these Gentiles? What about us? We were here first. And he says, listen, relax. They are enemies currently in your way of thinking, but God is using them to provoke you to jealousy so that eventually you will turn and come back to Him because God has called you to and the calling and choice of God is irrevocable. Therefore, all the promises that I've made to you Jewish people, they actually mean something. You can actually count on them. Because I don't do anything that is changeable, mutable. It is concrete. And it's the same here. Peter wants to remind these believers, you've been called by God. And this is the same God whose calling is irrevocable. It cannot be changed. So the promises He will make to you actually mean something. Within that greater framework of an unfailing, unchanging God. After He has called you, this God of all grace into eternal glory in Christ. Now we need to pause there for a moment and try to comprehend what Peter is saying. We have this precious promise that we have been called into the eternal glory of Jesus Christ. The ultimate goal of God. We need to think about this. The ultimate goal of God is to glorify Himself Yes, we agree with that. The ultimate goal of God is to glorify Himself. I hope we all rejoice in that. I hope, I hope we don't see as the ultimate goal of God something about us as being the end of that, but rather Him being glorified, Him being magnified, Him being made more glorious in our view because of the things that He does. But the ultimate goal of God is not only to glorify Himself, but to glorify Himself specifically through the redeeming work of Christ. God just doesn't, you know, wave a magic wand and say, okay, I'm glorified now. He does it through means. And the means that He has chosen is that through His own Son, sinners would be saved. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer this out loud. 
But why did God save you? That's a good question for all of us to ask ourselves on a regular basis. Why did God save me? I'll tell you exactly why. To create another eternal worshiping being of his glory. To create another member of the heavenly choir. That will sing his praises. That's why God saved you. That's why God saved me. He didn't merely save us because... So I don't go to hell. No, he saved us for a greater purpose. That is that he would be glorified. And so there is this great glory that that Peter is calling us to remember. And it is in Christ that that has happened. That we would be able then to partake of him. And we would not only be participants and recipients of that grace, but we would be trophies and a display of that grace as well. That's what we have to keep in mind as soldiers marching forward. Why am I here? Why am I fighting this battle? Because you are a trophy of grace. You're a recipient of God's salvation that you might be of greater usefulness in His worship and in His service for all eternity. This too has often been a focus of Peter, as he's written, I want you to think with me through the opening verses. First Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Why? He's answering the question about why God has done this calling and this preparing. And Verse 7, he says, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. We've, Brothers and sisters, do, do we understand that at the end of this battle, there's going to be a great coronation ceremony and we're going to share in those glories? will stand in the presence of the risen Christ as the Father lauds Him, the Lamb who had died and yet was risen again, and will join with the saints in the chorus that they're singing in Revelation 4 and 5. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. We get to participate in that. What a great honor. First Peter 1.21, through Him are believers in God, who through Him are believers in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We've been called to this eternal, eternal purpose of sharing in the glory of God. When Peter speaks in verse 10, going back to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, the God of all grace, after you have suffered for a little while, the One who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will now do these things for you. These things in the future will happen for you. He will continue to care for you. I want you to notice something. He speaks of the the fact that we have been called by the grace of God as something that has occurred in the past. We will suffer in the present. And we will be equipped in the future for all time. He's made us right with Him. But listen, brothers and sisters, in making us right with Him, He has made us at odds with the world. 
Why do we suffer? Because being right with God is to be wrong with the world. We can't have it both ways as Christians. And Peter is kind enough to warn us about that because so much of the the gospel, as it, notice please, air quotes, gospel, that has been preached in our nation for far too long is that if you follow Jesus, everybody's going to love you. Peter says, you follow Jesus and you've just picked a fight with the world. That's the reality. Quit expecting the world to love you. It will hate you. Now, you can believe cultural Christianity, which even that's dying very quickly. But to to, to be right with God is to be wrong with the world, to be at enmity with the world. But, but that suffering is temporary. It's only in the present. There's something better coming in the future. And here's the promise. If we were to sum it up, Paul says it best in succinct form in Philippians 1.6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's not finished with us. Again, Let me take you back to the deep theology of your Sunday school years. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be, right? He's not finished. He is still perfecting us until the day of Jesus Christ. So what are the promises Peter specifically mentions here? And they're they're interesting. It's interesting even though they sound like Peter's just repeating himself. He says the first thing that he's going to do for us is to perfect us. The word means to be adjusted. Some of you go to a chiropractor and you have your bones adjusted back into place. The the, the word in the Greek actually comes from the medical field and it's used of setting a bone in place. Something that is broken, that is made right. To be set. It's the setting of a bone. It has the idea that that in doing so, now you are fully whole. You're fully prepared. You're actually useful. We all know how useful a broken limb is. That's not useful at all. But God in His grace is setting us, making us useful, making us completely prepared, whereas before we were unprepared. Peter says that He will do for you. Notice the emphatic nature. Will Himself perfect you you don't perfect yourself any more than you called yourself and if god is the one who called you and his calling cannot fail because it ends in the ultimate glorification of his son then he will also perfect you with that same power in your life now he will establish you perfect you strengthen you and prepare you whereas before you were unprepared The second promise is that He will confirm you. Now, the first promise stands alone as really unique, and the the next three are very similar in nature, although each one is is a little different. To confirm literally means to cause something to be inwardly committed and confirmed, to be established or strengthened to the point that it is a driving desire of our own. Have you ever looked at the great heroes of the faith and say to yourself, what made them do that? 
What, what caused them to, to go to the stake and be burned for the cause of Christ? And for people who saw them do that, they recorded they went as a bridegroom to his wedding. Children, women, men burned for their faith, executed for their faith, all the while singing hymns of praise to the Lord. How did they do that? Because they had been confirmed. Inwardly, the grace of God had made them inwardly committed so that they would not back down. Peter says to people like us, hey, listen, uh, this graduation, here's your commission for the battlefield. I know you're worried that you might not make it through. You're concerned that when you meet the enemy on the field, that you might turn around and run when you see his strength. But don't fear that. Because God is going to confirm you. He is going to plant an inward resolution in you that will not quit. Because he wants you to go all the way to the end. Because in the end, you will be part of the chorus of singing his glories. Oh, He won't let you fail. And then he's going to strengthen you, Peter says. And that is to simply be made strong. He's going to fit you. You're mentally prepared and now you are being strengthened in that mental resolution and equipped with everything you need to actually do the job. And then lastly, he says you're going to be established. The dictionary defines this as Providing a secure basis for the inner life and its resources. Establish and strengthen you. In other words, God is going to create a supply line that you can never advance beyond its capabilities to reach you. It is going to supply you now with everything you could possibly need. It's going to build the foundation for you. And you'll have what you need, soldier. An army, it's been said so many times, can never march farther than its stomach. Meaning that you can never go further than what you can be supplied. If you, if you outmarch and, and get ahead of your supply lines, you'll fail in battle. But God won't let that happen. God is always sufficient in the battle. Notice, go back to verse 9 in 1 Peter 5. Notice the corresponding truth here that that it is our faith that makes us strong it is faith that is equipped stand firm in your faith resist him with that how does that happen because god supplies that faith so if you look at the at the order of the 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 promises that peter makes to us the first one looks like a raw recruit showing up to boot camp, doesn't it? And he's, you know, ill-prepared. He's physically unfit. And God takes him and he snaps him back in place and he makes him usable. And from there, he gets him right in the mind and he creates within him a, a mental uh, tenacity that, yes, I will do this. And then he takes him through the obstacle courses and the calisthenics and all of the things that are necessary to prepare a soldier for battle. And then as he, as he leaves boot camp, he says, no, here are all the supplies you're going to need. They'll never run out. They'll never be far away. You have what you need. Go and fight. 
D. Edmund Hebert categorizes this by saying, it is the promise that amid their sufferings, God will give the Christians the needed, I love this word, fixity and immobility, providing a strength that will enable them to resist the temptation to deny their Lord. Through all of this, he is putting a stainless steel rod down your spine. He is making you immovable, fixed in place. Then there's praise that comes naturally as a result of this. Imagine yourself again to be sitting there at that graduation ceremony commissioned and being told it's time to go, it's time to march. And you hear what you've been through and you hear that recounted to you and you know now what you have and you stand and you explode in praise to Him be dominion forever and ever. Worship and praise is expected. It's natural when God is at the root of it. Rather than the circumstances and the task, brothers and sisters, that lay ahead of us, we are called to look back at the hero of our faith. God who has called us and accomplished all of these things for His glory and for our equipping and our good. We we are to look back like Nebuchadnezzar. We we come to our senses and we, we realize what we've been through. And we have only one response and that is to look up. And to proclaim what is true and right. His is in everlasting dominion. He wins. How does God win? God wins because He rules over everything. God owns everything. Therefore, He will win. He created everything. Therefore, He will win. God, How does God know? You ever wondered that? How does how how God's omniscience work? I'll tell you how He knows. He wrote the story. Before the worlds began, he's determined and decreed everything. He's not up there learning. He's not up there responding to us. He wrote the script. And all that he created responds to what he says it will do. He knows because he is determined. Isaiah 46 verse 10. He has declared the end from the beginning. There you go. So that, right, it's not too corny to say, it's true. History is literally what? His story. He has declared the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. Saying this, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So Peter says the right response then is to praise God for this. And that's what? Paul does in Romans chapter 11 verses 33 through 36. If I sign anything with a verse, like a life's verse, it's Romans 11:36 for me. Paul for for 11 chapters has been going through all that God has done to accomplish our salvation and when he gets to verse 33 of chapter 11, he can't contain it any longer. He just explodes in praise. Just as Peter does here in verse 11. 
According to the definitive Greek dictionary, the term dominion means the ability to exhibit or express resident strength. Sovereignty. The ability to exhibit resident strength. Sovereignty. And this is what Peter says belongs to God. Not at certain points, but at all times. Forever and ever. And so rather than than singing a song of defeat and woe is me and I'm not sure how this is going to end up. And I, I don't know about this. This is, this is not feeling too, too, doesn't feel too good. Peter, what does Peter do? He begins to sing. Isn't that what the apostles often did in the darkest of circumstances? They sang. When they're in prison in the middle of the night, what do they do? They sing. They sing. Praises to Him who is sovereign and exercises dominion forever and ever. Peter's convinced. This is God's work. God's going to see this work through. Notice what Peter says. We are called into His service. We are strengthened by Him. We, we are called to exercise our role as, as priest. Revelation 1.6 He has made us to be a kingdom priest to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever. What do, what do priests do? They offer sacrifices, right? Sacrifices now of praise. Romans 8.37 But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. God's eternal sovereignty and dominion is not overturned, brothers and sisters, by our temporal circumstances. They are not. They cannot be. And so our response has to be one, naturally, of praising God. Now here's some Quick concluding thoughts. Here's a prescription. The last P. Here's a prescription. Even in closing, Peter again retreats back. It's like he, you know, you parents know what it's like as you prepare your kids for those big steps that they take in life. And, you know, whether it's sending them off to camp for the first time or it's a first job or the first time they go out driving by themselves for the first time. You've taught them. You've showed them how to brush their teeth. You've, you've talked to them about how to approach a, a stoplight and don't take off too quick because people run red lights, you know. So what, what, and what are we doing? Even as they're walking out the door, we've been over it a hundred times. What are you still doing? Coaching, teaching, reminding. And it's like Peter's a parent, and he's doing that again. Even as he gets to the, to the very signing of his name at the end of the letter, he just can't quit teaching. Notice what he says quickly. He says, I have written to you briefly, verse 12, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Wait a minute, I thought we were talking about Sylvanus now. 
Did you notice that? Notice how he starts. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, so I regard him. Oh, and then he retreats back to being a parent. I have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this, everything I've said, is the true grace of God. Don't, don't pervert the grace of God by any other means that, that, that somehow you participate in it. Sometimes you can improve it. None, that's, none of that's true. Focus on Him. And notice what He closes at verse 12. Stand firm in that. Don't quit. Wait, we just heard that, didn't we? Verse 9. But resist Him firm in your faith. You see, Peter just keeps going back. He can't quit teaching. Stand firm in this true grace. A.T. Robertson Translated it this way in his commentary. Take your stand, soldier. Take your stand. Take your post. And don't desert it. This is the hill. This grace of God that I've been talking to you about. This, this awesome, sovereign work of God. This is the true grace. Don't abandon it. Stand firm in it. And when you do, the result is that we found at the end of verse 14, peace. Peace. Absolute peace. Absolute tranquility. Though the world rages, there is peace in Christ. Why? Well, if you back up to verse 13, we read this. It's because we've been chosen together. In Christ. Remember these things, Peter says. Remember that strengthen the body of Christ with these things. Now, Peter mentions several key believers in churches. Silvanus, possibly the same person as Silas, Paul's traveling companion. Mark, the, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. And the church at Babylon is, is the church of Rome. Also chosen by God, Peter reminds them. They know... These people in Asia Minor, they know that, that it's not just them going through difficult times, it's Rome as well. The Christians in Rome were facing uh, the, the cult of Caesar and the demand to bow down to Caesar in his own backyard. Things are being leveled at them. And, and Peter says, listen, they who are chosen in Rome who will stand by the same strength send you their greetings. Don't quit. And the way you'll not quit and the way you'll not be discouraged in this alien world as strangers and pilgrims is to keep your eye on God. And the work that He has done for you. What a unifying thing the world around that we live with our brothers and our sisters throughout history rooted and grounded in these unchanging truths that allow us to stand our ground. Brothers and sisters, the circumstances of this life, in reality, in all honesty, are going to be hostile to Jesus Christ. Therefore, they will be hostile to you. But stand firm in your faith. Not faith that you've created, not faith that you've dreamed up, but faith that God has granted. And be convinced of this. 
You are not born at this time and in this place and called to this task by accident. You have been put here by the sovereign dominion of God. What do you have to fear? The one who put you there cannot fail. And he is the one equipping you and making promises to you that cannot fail. We cannot be moved. We will not be moved. We will win if these things stay in the forefront of our mind. These are the truths we must have in order to stabilize and solidify us. And God has been gracious enough to teach us and give us all that we need in order to accomplish that. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for Your Word. We're thankful for the way that You have preserved this Word even down now to the time that we live, from the time that Peter wrote it. And Father, we would confess we are weak and helpless on our own, but we know that Yours is everlasting dominion. We know that nothing that You do is imperfect or capable of failing. And so we're thankful, Lord, that even in the dark day that You have caused to shape up around us, we still have the hope that we will not fail in Christ Jesus. To those who are chosen by God and called by God, there is no possibility of failure ultimately for us. And we ask, Lord, that You would strengthen us and nourish us on the promises of Your Word. Cause us to be men and women of deep conviction about these things because they matter. These truths about who you are and the way that you work and what you've done, they matter because they, they point to you and they, they, they take ourselves out of the equation and they flow and they ooze the strength and the sovereignty and the power of God. So help us to focus on those things. That we might be the equipped people and recipients of your promises. And that we would be prepared having done all to stand in the day of battle, fully equipped with the armor of God that You have granted to us. Thank You for this book. We pray, Father, that You would use it in our lives, continue to bring things to our mind that we have studied from it, and encourage us with it. May we never retreat. May we always be advancing, always advancing, always pushing the, the, the conquering work of Jesus Christ in the world in which we live. We pray with You, Lord Jesus. Yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Because Yours is the dominion forever and ever. Amen.